but this is better. Uh, thank you so much, worship team and choir. Um, man, we did my lighthouse today. That was awesome. Um, just such a, a beautiful reminder, I think, to each of us because uh, who isn't coming in here with some kind of storm this week, right? Whether you are um, in the thick of it yourself or you're bearing with someone who is, it's good to know that we have someone who's going to be there with us in the midst of the storm, somebody who is going to lead us out of it. And uh, we need that hope, don't we? Uh, Revelation is such an interesting book to go through as we go through uh, our everyday lives because it can feel really far removed, can it? Just think of the last few weeks as we're talking about uh, dragons and beasts and second beasts and uh, the number is 666 and we're harvesting grapes and there's people singing and, and, and life and bills and taxes and kids and parents and just all of it. Wow, ooh, we got to... People are getting getting real vocal out there. But it's true, isn't it? We find ourselves going through life and we can find ourselves coming into this room saying, what is the point of us going through this? Like, hooray for exegetical preaching, but like, what is the hope in this book that's talking about this someday future thing and half of us in this room, we don't even agree with who's here at this point. You know, like, wait, we got sucked out of here. Pre-trip rapture. And some of you are like, oh, but wait. Like, what are we even talking about here? Man, in the midst of the details of everything that we've been going through these past few weeks, I think there is perfect timing by God's sovereign hand to have another one of those heavenly interludes. One of those heavenly interludes. And we've talked about what they do, right? In the midst of all of the details and everything that we're going on, there are sovereignly placed interludes that lift our eyes. That lift our eyes back to heaven. That give us that glimpse behind the curtain of what is going on. That God is still on the throne. That He is still sovereign. That, that all of these things that are happening are not just these, these random acts of craziness that are playing out before us on an earthly stage, but instead they are sovereign acts coming from God's hand. Reminding us that He is in control and that He is bringing mankind and this entire world, this entire universe to His appointed end. And so we come to Revelation chapter 15. I'm giving you time to turn there. Hopefully you're there already. And this is actually, this interlude is actually a prelude. This is actually setting the stage for the rest of what we are going to read in the book of Revelation. Setting the stage in such a way that isn't just going to lift our eyes off of the details, lift our eyes back up into heaven, but setting the stage to give us all of these beautiful hints to let us know where the story is going to go from here. Now again, we've had this book and you may have studied it before in the past. You may have read through it. But again, if you're reading this for the first time, if you are cracking open John's letter and you're reading it for the first time, imagine the suspense as you come to this prelude, you come to this point, and John is doing this this literary thing through through the hand of the Holy Spirit who is guiding him, setting the stage to say, you already know what's going to come. Before you read, I want you to lift your eyes. I'm not going to necessarily leave you in suspense, but I want you to know full well that by God's sovereign hand, we know how the story is going to end. And so let's see how it plays out from here. We're not going to go that far. We're just going to stick with 15. But we are going to see a beautiful stage setting for how we are to look at what is to come. How are we as believers here in the 21st century, how are we supposed to look at what is to come? What hope is there to be found in what is to come? How does it speak into our lives today amidst all of these crazy things that we just feel like, man, we just need deliverance from these things right now. 
How does the hope of what awaits us in the next few chapters speak to where we are today? I don't think it is a pointless endeavor for us to be in the book of Revelation today, especially Revelation 15. Because there is great hope, there is great direction, there is great deliverance to be found in this chapter. And so let's take a look starting in verse 1. Where we read, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. What was this great and amazing sign? Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. So verse 1 right away kind of um, lays, lays out where we're going to be going from here. Seven angels holding seven deadly blows. That's actually what what plagues can be uh, translated to from the Greek. Seven blows. Kind of puts it in context for us, doesn't it, of what we're looking at. Which are to fill these seven bowls, as we will read on, that are going to be poured out on the remainder of the world. This is the sign that John reveals is great and amazing. So we've seen through the seals a third of the earth be decimated. And then through the trumpets, uh, or I'm sorry, a fourth through the seals and then a third of what remains through the trumpets. And so here we are, right on that beginning cusp of going into the bowls of God's wrath. And we find out that more blows are to come. And this is great and amazing. It doesn't feel very great and amazing in that context, does it? Kind of feels like a war-torn country that had just experienced every natural disaster known to mankind. Just hear the that a nuke is coming. Like, really? This is what we're going to do from here? Yeah. Absolutely. And God and John sees it as great and amazing. How could that possibly be? Well, let's think of this in the, in the grand scheme of things, the context of the full counsel of Scripture, because where we are at at this point, as it pertains to prophetic human history, guys, this is great and amazing. This is great and amazing, because almost every major and minor Old Testament prophet spoke to the coming devastation associated with God's judgment. A time when Israel would be refined by fire. A time when the nations of the earth would be judged. A time when God's wrath would burn one final time against all sinful rebellion. And yet, in those same books, you will find prophesied that on the other side of that devastation lies promise. Great promise. Promise that Israel will be restored and redeemed to God-given glory. Promise that God will rule over and bring healing to the nations. Promise that God's wrath will be forever satisfied and glory fully realized by all man. And if I were Chris Fritz, which I am not, I don't know if you've noticed, even though my wife did dress me today. No, just kidding. If I were Chris Fritz, I would take you through several of these examples found throughout the Old Testament. But I am not Chris Fritz. I am a slow talker up here, believe it or not. Our word count differences on a Sunday morning, uh, they're, they're pretty staggering. You can ask Mr. Greenslade about that as he translates it into Espanol. Uh, his tongue is sore after Chris preaches. Uh, his tongue is fat and happy and full of fluid after I am done. And so I don't have the time. Uh, to, to take you through. But if you do look in your notes, uh, I would encourage you this week to read through Zephaniah 3 or, or Zechariah 12 through 14 or Joel 2 and 3. Um, again, when you look at these passages, you are going to see a time of great pain, a, a time of great judgment coming upon the earth like never before. And yet on the other side of it is promise, is beauty, is blessing. And so what the prophets foretold would happen someday is about to happen. 
at this point. This is the prelude to what we have all been waiting for. What we all, by this point, should know was coming. A final outpouring of judgment and wrath in the hands of a holy, just, righteous God. Wrath resulting in forever joy and blessing. At the hands of a loving, redeeming, merciful God who promises to make all things new. Praise God indeed. So in other words, what is being revealed here, what, is, what the stage is being set for here in this prelude is great and amazing because it proclaims the finality of God's wrath and the beginnings of future blessings. That's what we see the stage being set for here. From there, in chapter 15, verse 2, we get a, gr- a glimpse into how God's people are responding to what is unfolding. We read, And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Here John sees the conquerors of God. Specifically those who did not choose to bow a knee to the beast, its image, or its number Some believe these conquerors include more than just those who faced the beast and faithfully endured. And that may be true. Uh, This gathering may include all believers of all time or some believers of some time. We are not fully sure who is all going to be there at this precise moment in in, uh, redemptive history. But what we can be most certain of is, is that John is seeing those who faced the fate of Revelation 13.15 where we read, And it... The second beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. John sees those who heeded the words of Revelation 14.12 amidst this time of unprecedented persecution where we read, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God, and their faith in Jesus. John sees those who embodied the ones described in Revelation 12:11, where we read, they have conquered Him, being Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Here we see that this prelude proclaims the final victory of God's people over their every enemy. And so here John sees them, not as slain martyrs, but as conquerors in Christ. Standing near the sea of glass that surrounds the throne of God, as we saw in Revelation chapter 4, harps in hand, ready to give worship, ready to pour out praise, and yet not to sing of their own praises for their own accomplishments, what they were able to conquer in their own strength and their own might, but to praise the source of their faith and their endurance and their deliverance. Let's read verse 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So here John states that these conquerors are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, depending on how your Bible is laid out, you probably don't have one of those little numbers next to the lyrics that tell you, hey, if you want to know where this is from, go here and you can read it there. It seems like one of those things that should have one of those little numbers, but it probably doesn't. And that's because this is not a direct quote. Uh, you would think that this would be John harkening us back to Exodus 15 where we have the song of the Lamb or, or even the end of Deuteronomy, where, or I'm sorry, the song of Moses, or even the end of Deuteronomy where we have another song that Moses sings. Uh, but we don't have that. 
We don't even have a reference to the Song of the Lamb that we see earlier in Revelation as, as, the, or, um, as the heavenly assembly is singing to Christ the Lamb. We have none of that. Because even though all of this is steeped in the language that we find in those places and in a number of other songs, this is not a direct quote from that. Which leads to the question. Why are we calling this the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb? And if you were to ask five different commentators, you would come away with as many responses to why that is the case. And I don't really feel like going into all of that today. I don't think, uh, I think it misses the bigger point, but I think it's a fair question. And I think what we see here is something that is made to turn our gaze to a picture, to a shadow. Right? When we look at the, uh, the book of Hebrews, we find out that much of what happened in the Old Testament was, was a shadow, was a type of some heavenly reality, some divine parody that is to show us, to help us, to understand God better more fully, both what He is doing, what He will do, what He is going to do. And I think that's what we see being unfolded before our eyes here uh, in chapter 15 of Revelation. Let me explain that a little further. Um, The song of Moses was sung in Exodus 15 to Israel. And what was that song? What did that come right after? Huh? Parting in the Red Sea, right? I mean, this was like the first time in human history where God revealed Himself as the Deliverer, the Defender of His people. This is a huge moment. A moment that you will see uh, referenced back multiple times all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Prophets. This is a huge moment. And we see him drawing our eyes back to that original, what I believe that original song of Moses found in Exodus 15. I'm just going to read for you a part of that song of victory and triumph. Verses 1 through 3 read, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horses and his riders he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. And so this song is sung by Moses and all of Israel beside a sea of judgment that just swallowed their enemies. An act of judgment against Pharaoh in Egypt for their brutal enslavement of God's people and refusal to repent. Though God sent plague after plague to reveal His power and change their hearts, yet their hearts remained hard. They refused to obey God's command and heed His warnings. And so, as we know, Egypt's story ends in judgment at the bottom of the Red Sea. And Israel's story continues thanks to the God who delivered them from the hands of their enemies. This is a song of victory. This is a song of celebration, commemorating that great moment in history where God revealed Himself as the Deliverer, as the Defender of His people. And the Exodus, is, as we already mentioned, was, is often used in Scripture to remind us that God is our present-day Deliverer and Defender. It is something that God's people have looked back on through the ages to say, look what He did. We know He did this. We know He can do this. Look at Psalm 77, where we read, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my troubles, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. We see the psalmist here in great distress, saying, I I, I need God. We don't know what the exact situation is, but as you read through, he's got enemies, he's got people who are coming against him, and where does he seek comfort at the end of the psalm? 
Where does he look back to? The psalm concludes in verses 19 and 20. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And you look at that and you're like, well, that's a, that's a weird way to end a psalm. No, it's not if you know the story. No, it's not if you know what was revealed on that day. What promise was theirs to hold from every day forward each and every day. That's what they're calling on here. That's what they're looking back to here. And again, in Psalm 106, where after recalling Israel's continued unfaithfulness and God's continued deliverance after the Exodus, David writes these words. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distresses when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. The Exodus is used throughout many other psalms and many other prophetic books, such as Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Nehemiah. Again, if I was Chris Fritz. I would stop wasting time right here like I so often do with these random little sides and I would instead read you 17 different verses that prove this. But instead, I want to call your eyes back to your notes because under point three, uh, you will see many of those passages listed. Uh, many of them are whole chapters that draw this theme out, that bring their eyes back to the Exodus and all the way through the devastation into the promise. Holding on to God as the deliverer, the defender. He's done it before, He will do it again. That was the hope. That was the hope of the people as they cried out to God. They went back on His character, His unchanging character that was revealed that day. His covenant love for His people that was revealed that day. And they said, He's done it before and He will do it again. And David reveals in that last psalm that we read, he goes all the way back to the Exodus and goes through Israel's history up to that point and their rampant unfaithfulness. And yet, David has the sheer audacity, not based in foolishness, but based in faith. Knowing who his God is. Knowing who he was revealed to be. To say, nevertheless, in the midst of all of this, we call to you. Because where else are we going to go? You've already revealed that you're the deliverer. You've already revealed that you're the defender. Where else are we going to go? That was a great history lesson. But what does Exodus 15 have to do with Revelation 15? That's a fair question. Let me take a drink. Let's think about it. What have we read so far? Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps in hand, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Here we see the conquerors singing the song of Moses, a song of worship that looks back on what God has already done. That looks back on who God has already revealed Himself to be. Great and amazing are your deeds. Just and true are your ways. And yet they also sing the song of the Lamb. A song of expectation for what God will soon do through Christ the Lamb. Who will not fear and glorify your name? All nations will come to fear you. Sung beside where? 
the glassy sea which surrounds the throne of God. A sea now mixed with what? Fire. Almost as though that sea has judgment mixed into it right now. Plagues are what is going to pour forth from that judgment. Plagues that are um, for those who worship the beast and willingly took his mark. A final act of judgment that concludes where? At the bottom of a different kind of sea, doesn't it? It concludes at the bottom of the lake of fire where Satan and the beast and all who worshipped his image are eventually thrown into the bottom of the sea to face forever judgment. While God's people do what? They enter into their forever promised land. Don't they? Where they get to enjoy this ultimate fulfillment of what God had promised through the prophets thousands of years ago and predicted would one day be our final finish. A forever with Him in His presence where evil and death and sin and destruction and everything that has come as a consequence of everything that our sin allowed into this world is no more. And we have on that day a promise that you'll read about in Isaiah where God will take our hearts and He will write upon them His very laws. And He will create for Himself a pure and undefiled people who will forever praise His name and enjoy the promises associated with the beauty of His presence for all of eternity. Do you see what this prelude is doing? In advance, it's telling us exactly how this story is going to unfold. In a way in which it's unfolded before on a much smaller scale. The final judgment is the final exodus. And it reveals Christ as the final and forever deliverer of His people. Giving context to this song of the Lamb sung back in Revelation 9, or I'm sorry, Revelation 5, 9 through 10, where we read, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed your people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. I hope by now you can see that the, this prelude proclaims Christ as the final deliverer of his people. And so the stage is set. In Revelation 15, for the last exodus, with an interlude that builds our anticipation as all of these interludes do for what comes next. For the final and full deliverance of God's people at the hands of King Jesus. With the conquerors of Christ already standing on the shores of heaven proclaiming this great song of victory. And yet while this chapter proclaims victory, victory that we should all find hope in, right? Because just as I said today, we all find ourselves in storms. We all find ourselves in need of a deliverer. Even if Christ is your eternal deliverer, if you have placed your faith in Jesus for the covering of your sins and you are hoping in the promise of eternity with Him, hashtag life. Right? We're still losing loved ones. We're still dealing with sickness. We still deal with persecution. And the Bible promises more to come. This world is still a hard place to live. And even though we know that we are sojourners in a foreign land, we still have to live in this land, don't we? And yet here we are, before we ever get to the end of the book, and in this prelude, 
God wants to make perfectly clear through the words of John. Our Deliverer is coming. Our Deliverer is near. And in the midst of what will be the worst persecution ever faced by believers, He says this is a call for endurance. Why? Because on the other side of what we are facing is forever. Is promise. Is beauty. Is blessing. Is every tear being wiped away? Is every tongue confessing what we already know for all of eternity? And we will all sing the song of the Lamb. Because of what He did and what He has done and what He will be doing forever for His people. Amen, right? How beautiful of a prelude this is before we ever get into all that comes next. He says, just... Hold on. You know how this story ends on a much smaller scale. Watch what I'm going to do from here. And yet while this passage proclaims promise and victory and beauty and blessing, that's not all that it proclaims, is there? Let's look at verse 5. After this, after all this that we just covered, I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. There's a lot going on in these final four verses, all pointing ahead to what's going to come next. I don't know if you've noticed one word in particular mentioned quite a few times in these last few verses, but we see the number seven on repeat. John uses the number seven eight times total in this chapter, six times in the last four verses alone. We don't see that same um, literary device used throughout the other judgments. He's making a point. He wants us to be fully certain, fully aware of the fact that one, what comes next is the fullness, is the completion. This is the beginning of the end of God's wrath. He wants us to be well aware of that. And so we need to see that as we look at these last few verses. We also see angels dressed in pure, bright linen with gold sashes. If you read throughout Revelation, John does not spend a whole lot of time. You would think, I would think, somebody sees an angel, I want to get coffee with that person, right? Like, hey, can we just like go to Starbucks and you can just talk and I'll just listen about what exactly you saw because you said you saw an angel and you're not crazy, right? Right? You're not crazy. Okay. You're not crazy. So please expound. What are you seeing here? And yet John doesn't do that very much throughout the book of Revelation. He sees these angelic beings and we just kind of move on unless it is someone or, oh, yeah, someone who plays a major role in what is about to happen. Otherwise, a lot of times it's just, and then I saw an angel. And then I saw a messenger of God. And yet here we get the full description of what they are wearing and what they are doing. John wants us to see that these beings are about to carry out a very important task. They have weight. He describes them in a way that that magnifies their, their radiance, their holiness, and thus their importance. Pure, bright, golden, Coming from where? The sanctuary 
within the tent of witnesses. As Chris mentioned last week, this represents the the heavenly place where God's presence dwells. Though in this chapter, uh, John chooses to use tent or tabernacle versus temple. As seen in chapters 11 and 14. Again, what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to draw our minds back to that Exodus imagery. Same meaning, same understanding of where they're coming from and and who is within that sanctuary, is within that sacred space. We know that that is where God's presence dwells, but He wants us to understand. He doesn't want us to forget this is the final exodus. This is the final exodus. And we see the sanctuary is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power similar to the smoke that covered Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20 as as God's glory filled it. Or only Moses and Aaron were were allowed to draw near. Similar to the way God's glory filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and not even Moses was able to enter. Smoke from God will fill the sanctuary in this heavenly tabernacle on that day, in that appointed time. And none are allowed to enter into His presence until the fullness of His wrath is poured out. Here we see that this prelude proclaims both the finality and the severity of the coming judgment. This is a chapter of great victory, of great hope. And we should not miss that. Our Deliverer is coming. What we have waited for, what has been promised, is just a little while down the road. And yet we have to remember. We have to remember that before we get there, a lot has to go down, doesn't it? We celebrate the victory of God's people being delivered from their enemies as we look out at a sea that is full of destruction and righteous, just judgment. And in the same way, God's people will once again sing that final song of victory. That final song that will acknowledge God for all that He's done. And will look with anticipation for all that the Lamb is going to do. And yet, to get on the other side where beauty and blessing and promise await, we have these final seven judgments. These final bowls that we read here are full of God's wrath. God's wrath that we will see in in, um, Revelation 16, verse 2, that they are to be poured out on those who worshipped the beast, who followed after Him, who worshipped His image, And even though we will see in verses 8-9 through that there is still an opportunity, there is still a, a beautiful opportunity that God gives amidst this judgment for these hard hearted, stiff necked people to turn to Him in repentance. That just like in the time of Egypt and Pharaoh, they won't. But instead, they will shake their fists at the sky in a final act of rebellion that says, not your will, but my will be done. It's a hard picture to look at. And it's one that we need to wrestle through. It is final. It is severe. And sadly, we know the inevitable end of the story because again, we've seen it play out on a much smaller stage. We know that that sea surrounding the throne mixed with the fires of judgment will have the last say. And while that means beauty and blessing for God's people, it means a forever end filled with forever judgment and forever separation 
for not just Satan, not just the beast, but all who followed him and refused to bow a knee to Jesus. So what do we do with this? Well, hopefully you see that amidst your storm that you're going through right now, that we have a deliverer, that we have hope. That even if you don't see these, these last days that we are talking about, the story doesn't change. Because the same hope of the psalmist, the same hope of the prophet, are, is the same hope for the people of God today. That when we call on our Deliverer, that He hears us and He is mighty to save. And so wherever you are today, whatever you are going through today, whether you are bearing the weight of life or you are helping someone else bear the weight of their lives, Cry out to your Deliverer. Our promise in Hebrews 4 is that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness and he is an ever-present help in the time of need. I find beauty in the fact that that particular context is actually in relationship to me and my sin. So even me at my worst, on my worst day, I can cry out to my sympathetic high priest, my forever deliverer, to come meet me right where I am in my filth. How much more can I call out to him when my kids are running from him? When my husband or my wife refuses to run after him and is running in the opposite direction of him? When the bills are piling, when the health isn't getting fixed, when the world just seems like it is crashing down around us, when it seems like those walls of water on each side are actually made for me, and it seems like they're coming down, where do we turn? Where else can we turn? He is the one we turn to. He is the one we cry out to. And as we've as I've said before from this stage, that just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about to face the fires of the furnace, what did they say to the king in confidence? The same thing that we can say in the midst of our trials and tribulations that we go through, that my God will deliver us. And even if He doesn't, who am I going to bow to? To you, O king? No. No. My knees are made for one King, and that's King Jesus. And so I will stay faithful because I know that even if I lose my life in this life, I have hope beyond this life. I have a forever promise because I have a forever deliverer. Amen? And so church, take heart. Do not lose hope. Wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, King Jesus has got you. He's got you. And you may see Him part the waters in this life, or you may not but you'll see Him do it. You'll see Him do it. Maybe now, but definitely forever. And so praise His name and stay faithful even in the midst of the fire. They may consume you or He may be right in there walking with you, but either way, He will never leave you or forsake you. Because in this world, you will have what? That's a guarantee from your Savior who took on His own trouble for you. And yet He says what? Take heart. Why? He has overcome the world. Your trial, your distress, your enemies, even the greatest final enemy is going to find his way in the bottom of a sea forever for you. Praise God, hallelujah. There is hope. And yet there is also warning. Is there not? And so what do we do with this? The same thing that we've been doing for the last few weeks. See Chris Fritz's sermon last week and the week before that and the week before that. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, turn to Him today. As long as there is today. Because someday we will face this day and it will be the end of days. 
We are made to be eternal beings. And you will either spend eternity with Him, enjoying the blessings that He promised long ago, that He guaranteed in the Exodus, and promises at the end of the final Exodus. You will either reap the beauty and the blessings found in the cross of Christ and the blood that He shed for you, or you will spend eternity apart from your Maker in eternal judgment. And you can say, how cruel, how unloving. No, how kind and how loving because He warned us and He preserved His Word for us so that we could read the prophets of old and we could read John today who predicts tomorrow and tells you exactly what you need to know that God is coming and He is a righteous judge. And it promises right here, who will not bow? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you will either... Do it out of worship for the one who saved you or out of fear from the coming judgment for the one who stands over you, ready to pronounce your eternity apart from him. And so if you are here today and you are playing that game of, mm, not today, mm, not interested, uh, not sure if I believe that, uh, I'm, uh, uh. okay. All I can do today is tell you what God's Word says. And my prayer, my hope, is that the Holy Spirit convicts your heart today and that you cry out to Jesus. That you see your sin, the death that it's causing, and the, and the, the full wage that it stands to reap at the end of time and that you would turn to Jesus fully and completely as your Lord and Savior. That's what we do with this. And for those of you who say, I did that, He is my Savior, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Victory and blessing, right? Victory and blessing, right? Who are you telling about that? Because one day, this day, be our day. And if your theology leaves room for, well, I'm not here anymore, so it's not mine to worry about, get a new theology. Because the commission that we have been given by our King is to go and make disciples. To tell Him, to tell the world about Him. And if your theology excuses you from the Great Commission, then you've missed it. You've missed the point. The point is our Deliverer, who is our Deliverer, now and forever is coming again and He is coming as a judge and a righteous King. And for every knee that does not bow to Him now, they're going to spend eternity apart from Him. And so what do we do with this? We allow the beauty and the blessing and the victory to become the, the what that we preach? The good news! The Gospel! Beloved, this is what we've been given because even though this text begins with good news, bad news is also coming, isn't it? Bad news for those who have not bowed a knee to their Savior and reached out and grabbed a hold of His good news. And so somehow, God in His sovereignty uses messed up people like us to be His mouthpiece. Praise God indeed. And it is to the praise of our God that we go out fearlessly and unapologetically preaching the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation because we know that every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow and we want to see the full number submit themselves to King Jesus as their Lord. So that is, what do we do with this? Maybe isn't the right question. Maybe the right question is, what are we doing with this? Who are you pursuing with this? Yeah, but that promotion. Yeah, but I, I really want to make first chair. Yeah, but I mean, I got to get into that college. Yeah, but you see her over there? Woo-woo. Life. Yeah, but, oh, the storms. Yeah, but, oh, my, my mom's health. Yeah, but uh, I, got, I got this that I'm holding on, this that I'm carrying. Yep. And one day that will all be over. 
and it will reveal, it will burn away everything that didn't matter and reveal what is eternal. Let us live for what is eternal. Let us live for that day today, right? And Amy and Patrick wrote this. So may, may we live each day in light of that day. Oh, may that be said of us, beloved. That we would look at both the good news of what is to come and, and the hard, heavy, weighty news of what is to come. Both the song of victory on the sea beside the throne and the sea of judgment consuming God's every enemy. And may we live our lives accordingly. Being proclaimers of the news that we know that someone out there might not. Who are you intentionally pursuing? Look at those questions in your notes and give it thought. Because I know how I pursue greener grass. I I know how I pursue a a bigger 401k. I don't pursue it well, by the way. I'm a youth director. I know how I pursue having a, a cleaner car or, or, or more mustard-colored sweaters or a deeper relationship with my wife or, or fun vacations with my kids. I know how I pursue those things intentionally. How are we as the church, as the, the ones who He gave His good news to and told to proclaim it, how are we intentionally centering our lives around those who we know do not know what they need to know? Will you consider that before the Lord today and ask Him to lead you to those, to create space with those, to be an ambassador for the truth? Because one day this will be our day. So let's live like it's true. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the words found in Revelation 15. And we thank You for partnering with us in Your power, in Your sovereignty, in Your grace, that You've called us, that You've commanded us to consider the things that are above, to live our lives as though this life is not our own, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow You, to put to death the things that don't reflect You and to pick up that which does, to be prepared in and out of season, to to testify to the hope that is in us, This should not surprise us. This is the life that we were called to. And yet, God, I confess that I most of all, most often don't live in this way. And so I receive both the grace that you give and also the commission that you have laid out. And I ask your Holy Spirit to fill me and empower me and equip me Your Word already says that You have given me everything that I need for the task at hand and I pray that I would live like it's true. That in faith that I would live this life in light of the One who lives in me. In light of the One that I am going to stand before someday. And in light of the fact that many won't. Many won't have forever with You. And I pray that each of us would take seriously the work that You've called us to do. Oh God, help us to be the church because no one else will. No one else will. Help us to be the hope that this world desperately needs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.